Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War the Seven Years' War Of the When Diplomacy Fails Special on Napoleon The Crimean War To When Diplomacy Fails Special on World War I the Dutch Revolt To the When Diplomacy Fails Special on the Thirty Years' War The July Crisis Anniversary Project The Swedish Deluge Britain Goes to War The 1916 To the Rising. Franco-Dutch War of 1672 This is When Diplomacy Fails Remastered When diplomacy fails, we have seen the code of honour take many forms. Whether it was in the wars launched by Louis XIV or British justification for entering the First World War, the code of honour, national honour, and a number of other titles which the concept went by has been a constant companion of ours throughout our coverage. This episode here is essentially a review of the concept in the 400 years or so that it was in use during our narratives. In this episode, I want to examine its development over time, its transferal from the person to the state, its use by imperialists, and identification with those that advocated a furthering of empire, and its consistent appearance as well in foreign policy from the 19th century onwards, arguably culminating in the conflagration which was the First World War. Why do I do this? Well... I felt as though it would serve as a useful survey of one of the most underrated, but arguably one of the most important, foreign policy devices. Not only that, but as we're at five years old, and the concept served such an important role for both the Masters, my book, and just my general interest over the years, I felt it was only right to denote the prevalence of the concept for us during that period of time by doing the concept some justice in its own kind of dedicated, standalone episode. So I hope you enjoy it, as this episode of When Diplomacy Fails Thinks takes you to the school of pondering and deep, reflective thought.
code of honor, as I quickly learned, is less about the scientific meaning of the term, or how we can break it down into a digestible definition, or if indeed such a exercise is possible or necessary. It's actually more about the stories of the people whom that concept ensnared, those that felt affected by the code, who changed their stance or altered their plans, or brought about transformations in other people's lives, and threw a whole continent into flux. This is because, even though by its very nature, national honour seems connected to the state and appears on the surface to have moved on from its knightly origins, the reality is that national honour meant different things to different people. And, in the words of Norman Angel, writing on the eve of the First World War, national honour is... Like an oath, serving with its vague yet large meaning to intoxicate the fancy, its vagueness and elasticity makes it possible to regard a given incident at will as either harmless or a casus belli. We call it maintaining the national prestige, enforcing respect, and I know not what other high-sounding name, but it amounts to the same thing in the end. Indeed, national honour plainly represented so many overlapping and traditional ideas critical to large empires on the cusp of the international system before 1914, that it couldn't be ignored, even if a natural cynicism promoted one MP to note in 1914 that national honour was always the excuse. Whether it was a convenient tool, or a code of principles which was passionately believed in by European statesmen, it's largely up to the historian to decide. But what really drew me in, and what continues to fascinate me about the concept, is that it brings us so close to the human elements of diplomacy, which the more traditional surveys of foreign policy don't really allow. We can't know what the Foreign Secretary of Britain was really thinking in 1878, when it seemed as though Britain would soon declare war on Russia, to take one example, unless we delve into the complicated and sometimes horrifying ideology of the era, and national honour made up a fundamental building block of that ideology. In fact, to some statesmen it wasn't merely a building block, but it represented the entire house. So what do we know about national honour outside of Britain in the 19th century? Well, to take it back further than the 19th century, we know that it was of critical importance to Louis XIV during his wars from 1667 to 1714, even if he called national honour something different back then. To Louis, war was a quest for what he called glore, but which we roughly translate as glory. Yet glory as we understand it doesn't quite address the high-minded sentiments which... Louis attached to the term, nor does it explain why the idea so motivated him to seek battle with his neighbours, often to the detriment of the very kingdom that he ruled over. Glore, in Louis's mind, was a concept born of the circumstances of the time, where the nobility lived to distinguish themselves in battle through a heroic deed or a grand sacrifice. It was through such actions that the nobles would achieve fame, and thus their names would be known throughout the realm and associated with great and honourable feats. It's not hard to recognise this belief system as one which descended from the chivalric practices of knights, especially when we consider that the nobility viewed themselves as the quintessential warrior caste of France. Through the dual channels of this class and the king himself, glory through battle became the staple resource of 17th century France, a resource worth sacrificing so much for, owing to the benefits it could bring to your house, your name, and your legend. To the nobility, this cause was essential, but to Louis, such a cause was sacred. He fully appreciated that in order to advance the renown of his regime, it would have to be christened on the battlefield. 
and no greater glory could be won than that won in war. In line with these beliefs, Louis would attack the Dutch Republic in 1672, not so much because, as the traditional historical narrative has it, he was seeking revenge, but in actual fact because he sought more glory for his Bourbon house and a greater respect for his name. The search of immortality, of acquiring fame and of engaging in war for the sake of glory are all variants of national honour, but Louis was far from alone in his pursuit of them at that time. Alluring though he was as a national figure, King Frederick II of Prussia, otherwise known as Frederick the Great, also saw the value of launching wars for the glory of his reign. In 1740, the national honour of Prussia was twinned with the national interest, as taking Silesia from a vulnerable Austria would prove a great boon to Prussian fortunes, and essentially kick-start its rise to the top of the European food chain. Louis XIV's great-grandson also got in on the action, waging the war of the Polish succession in the 1730s in search of triumphs and glories in Austrian-owned Italy. When the British proved unable to appease the colonials, an American revolution was the result, and this revolt was seen as endangering British prestige and security, two more concepts so often twinned with national honour. The British failure to defeat the Americans led to wars with France, Spain and the Dutch simultaneously, and the security of Britain then seemed to be in a crisis. Thus the importance of maintaining its dominions abroad, lest its facade of power at home crack, was inculcated into the British psyche. It was because Britain had been weak in its dealings with the Americans, after all, that its rivals had taken advantage. The French Revolution, to jump further ahead, brought about what is generally seen as the transferal of national honour from the person to the nation. This transferal was made possible due to the heaving numbers of soldiers involved in the national defence. It had the result of making the soldier care about his country's reputation and image abroad. Though one could argue that the soldier already cared for such qualities in the previous centuries, it is from 1815 onwards that national honour, the national interest and civilian involvement in foreign affairs become so intertwined. This enmeshing of the public with the policy had the effect of granting policymakers a new opportunity. Like never before, the public could be motivated to support a war by appealing to their patriotism, to their sense of national pride and to their concern for how the country was being treated and viewed abroad. This development was virtually completed by 1839, when Britain waged its first war of the Victorian era, the First Opium War. By this stage, whereas a duel would have been invoked between gentlemen to defend any insult or challenge to one's personal honour, these practices were now viewed in terms of nation-states. As one historian noted, when it came to rectifying the situation between states, and when a nation, rather than merely a gentleman, felt slighted, the remedy is violence, preceded by the polite manoeuvres and languages of diplomacy. If satisfaction is denied, there is a loss of reputation, status, honour. The violence is then redirected and internalised as humiliation and shame. With this background system of insult and satisfaction in place, it becomes possible to see the First Opium War as a desperate solution launched by the British Empire to recoup national honour in a far-off Asian land while its European rivals continue to challenge its position closer to home. As Glenn Melanchthon in his article Connecting the Code of Honour and the First Opium War noted, 
Honour governed today what we call linkage or credibility, because loss of honour would affect Britain's moral power to influence the actions of other states by undermining confidence in its ability to follow through in its decisions. These states must not forget, when facing a British frigate, however small, for example, that the flag of England must be respected. Because it faced so many challenges to its power at home, the First Opium War was seen in London as a chance to strike out and achieve a triumph abroad, to prove to its rivals that British power and prestige remained supreme. This pressure to act revolved around the belief that if Britain was not seen to act, its prestige, its national honour, its moral fibre, and the other associated qualities would have been seen to dip. From my understanding, when a nation came to the defence of its national honour, it essentially served as an excuse launched to prove that that nation was not a paper tiger. While this motivation might seem strange to us today, in the absence of a recognised system of international law and without any overarching institutions in place to protect the rights of states, pure military power and the reputation of that military's prowess were some of the only guards many nations felt they had against the predatory instincts of their rivals. Britain, for one, had been taught in the 1770s and early 80s that its difficulty would be made into political gain by its European rivals. And in an atmosphere where it was believed that all powers plotted the downfall of one another, it's not difficult to see why British statesmen acted as they did. This belief that prestige was consistently on the line as though British policymakers operated within a wall street of world opinion. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. Plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Within which one's power could be said to dip or rise depending on your actions within it, 
led further British statesmen to do incredible things during the remainder of the 19th century. Take the prestige-minded Conservative Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli, for example. In the 1870s, it was Disraeli who firmly argued that Britain would lose prestige if she was not seen to have a say in virtually all foreign transactions. Not a soldier could march in Africa, not a state be annexed in Europe, not a merchant be expelled in Asia, without Disraeli's government either playing a role in it or having something significant to say about it. This was part of building the impression that the British influence was everywhere, which in Disraeli's mind would create the belief that so prevalent was the British presence, its power must be therefore unassailable. In turn, this formula would increase British power in the minds of its rivals, and then affect a great increase in her security. Thus, when the Turks were threatened by an aggressive Russian advance during the Russo-Turkish War of 1877, Disraeli argued forcefully, and repeatedly, for a stiff response, and then for straight-up war with St. Petersburg. Throughout this experience, Disraeli argued from the position that if Britain could be effectively ignored in foreign affairs, and if it proved unnecessary to contact her during various crises, then her image as a far-reaching and unassailable empire would be in jeopardy. This view was challenged at every turn, as we know if we listen to Britain Goes to War, by the British Foreign Secretary Lord Derby, who argued passionately himself for an adoption of true conservative principles in British foreign policy and an abandonment of such a reactionary and belligerent, not to mention expensive, policy line. Darby would reason repeatedly that British power was safe because nobody could question British power, since it was not in doubt. It wasn't as if she had been defeated militarily in a war. Britain maintained its net of agreements and contracts throughout the world, and no power would dare question this system or attempt to interrupt it, since Britain's pre-existing reach was enough to cast out all doubt. This, in essence, was what the Conservative foreign policy line had always been, after all, a maintenance of the status quo and a consolidation of what had already been gained. Yet Disraeli's efforts to redefine what Conservative foreign policy looked like and his edging out of Derby from the party altogether had the effect of pushing the concepts like national honour and prestige to the fore and transforming Conservative ideas of foreign policy in the process. It soon became impossible to talk about conservative foreign policy without mentioning national honour, and thus when the epic and embarrassing failures abroad in the Zulu Wars cast unfavourable lights upon Disraeli's proud regime, the pressure was on his premiership to rectify the situation. When his premiership proved too slow or unsuccessful in achieving any of these aims, they lost the subsequent election and were pushed from office by the same British people who had been convinced by them that such qualities were essential to the British Empire. Tisraeli had, in a sense, been defeated by his own ideological monster. The failure of British arms and the defeat at the hands of the Zulus reaped on the British name the opposite end of national honour. Shame. Shame as a resource in international affairs and the rhetoric of national honour represented the no-go area. Incurring shame meant weakness, it meant vulnerability in the decrease in your power, which of course meant that you would be open to attack. Shame can be defined as a sentiment, a state of mind, an emotional disposition experienced when one feels depressed, dishonoured or belittled, or when one sees oneself exposed to criticism or even disgrace by a certain deed which has been uncovered. 
As we can see from that historian's definition, shamelessness is a powerful incentive for action. It has even been studied in terms of the modern-day pressuring of other states to act along with the societal norms of the international system. Just as honour was associated with issues like prestige, justice, morality and reputation, so too could shame be associated with humiliation and weakness. The association of a state with shame detracted from its reputation, from its standing and from its honour on the international stage, and thus states sought to avoid being associated with it wherever possible. Honour couldn't be gained or half lost. It was either possessed by a state or a person, or it was perceived to be absent. It could thus be claimed that to be in a possession of honour, in the words of one historian, implies not merely a habitual preference for a given mode of conduct, but the entitlement to a certain treatment in return. Fear of shame led statesmen to do incredible things, as the race to the bottom was feared to represent the ultimate decline in one's powers to resist their neighbours. One should bear in mind that the historical experience of statesmen before 1914 had greatly aided these beliefs. Poland, for example, partitioned into oblivion in 1795, had ceased to exist because it had become controlled by foreign powers, because its ability to resist had vanished, because its national honour had been shamed thanks to subservience to Russia. Poland's example, the ideology went, was the logical conclusion to a neglected prestige or national reputation. And there were further contemporary examples of declining states during the timeline as well. Think of the Ottoman Empire, the sick man of Europe, or the Austrian Empire, the other sick man of Europe. By 1914, both seemed to be teetering on the brink of disintegration due to the national pressures which threatened to tear them apart. The Ottoman case demonstrated what was in store for those states who neglected their security. Security, of course, bound up in national honour, and it was only inevitable that this decline would be capitalised on by one's rivals, as had been seen in the Balkan Wars. Because of the linkage of national honour to perceptions of national prowess, it was presented as logical and inevitable that a loss in one sphere would result in a loss in the other sphere. This fear of incurring further shame and a loss of reputation compelled Austrian statesmen to make war on Serbia in pursuit of its gradually building sense of paranoia, but above all shame. If Vienna was not seen to act in the face of the Serbian assassination of its archduke, then Europeans all over the world would know that the Habsburgs had not got the capabilities to defend their interests. Then it was merely a case of how long the empire could possibly last, if it was proved so unfit to maintain even its limited reputation by 1914. Thus it was less for revenge at perceived Serbian slights than due to the fundamental belief that Austria had to be seen to act, which led the Austrian declaration of war on Serbia to take place on the 28th of July, 1914. Yet it wasn't merely threatened or declining powers that invoked the Code of Honour. In perhaps the most infamous of speeches made at the time of the outbreak of the First World War, the British Foreign Secretary Sir Edward Grey would present a speech to his peers in the House of Commons on the afternoon of the 3rd of August, 1914. During the course of the speech intended to persuade those present of the need for British intervention in the war, Grey consistently argued the point that if Britain remained neutral, her sense of prestige and national honour would suffer. Grey said that, for many years, we have had a long-standing relationship with France, but how far that friendship entails obligation, let every man look into his own heart and his own feelings 
and construe the extent of the obligation for himself. Emphasising obligations rather than straightforward political commitments were a common theme of the speech, and Gray added shortly after, in a reference to the issue of Belgium, noting, In a crisis like this, if we run away from those obligations of honour and interest as regards the Belgian treaty, I doubt whether, whatever material force we may have at the end, it would be of very much value in face of the respect that we should have lost. Gray then concluded his speech by saying that, Our moral position would be such as to have lost us all respect if Britain remained neutral. Only a few minutes later, Gray emphasised that outcome again. Should Britain absolve itself of the Belgian treaty and denounce its obligations altogether, she would sacrifice respect, her good name and her reputation before the world. We can thus conclude that in the case of the Foreign Secretary by 1914, national honour was a critically important aspect of international relations and seems to have motivated the likes of Edward Gray to argue for a policy course that would safeguard Britain's national honour and prevent any incurring of shame. Yet Gray wasn't the only statesman in Britain to adhere to this formula, of course. In September 1914, for example, Gray's colleague and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, David Lloyd George, delivered a speech that heavily emphasised, in this era, the esteem which was held for honour generally, but most especially by Lloyd George himself. He said, I am fully alive to the fact that whenever a nation has engaged in war, she has always invoked the sacred name of honour. Many a crime has been committed in its name, there are some crimes being committed now, but all the same, national honour is a reality, and any nation that disregards it is doomed. That Britain would have been doomed if it neglected its national honour was a belief so ingrained upon the government's psyche that its statesmen felt compelled to intervene in the First World War largely because of it. Much like the Code of Honour was found in the quests for glory launched by Louis XIV in the Ottoman fear of their own decline, and even the romantic ideas of pan-Slavism, so too could it be found in Britain's decision to enter the First World War. Such a conclusion demonstrates that national honour was a concept of much value and importance throughout the early modern period, yet it also shows that it is a concept much in need of a proper comprehensive survey which takes account of the idiosyncrasies in which different nations applied to that code. Through such a survey, the true extent of that concept's impact on the course of human history can be better assessed. But until then, we'll just have to make do with the more limited studies at hand. Bringing our coverage up to the First World War necessitates a friendly reminder that I have written a book on the subject, which you can find by searching Matter of Honour in Amazon or simply Google. I should also add that patrons get a signed copy of the book as per their rewards if they become a foreign secretary, which may or may not be your thing, but if it is, hopefully you'll do a better job than Sir Edward Grey. Either way, I will send you a signed copy of the book if you go to wdfpodcast.com forward slash shop and purchase one yourself. In line with the idea that the Code of Honour is in need of a much more in-depth study, perhaps you'd be interested to know that for my planned PhD dissertation, if Cambridge or anywhere else will accept me again, I plan to examine the Code of Honour in British foreign policy from 1839 to 1914. As you know, that era is rich with examples of the Code of Honour being bandied about for all sorts of reasons, though it may surprise you to learn that very few actual examinations of the concept exist today and no surveys of the concept throughout the centuries exist, which I am aware of. 
So through undertaking those studies somewhere down the line, I hope to add significantly not just to the literature on foreign policy in the British Empire, but also to build upon our understanding of how human emotions and deeply ingrained beliefs, underrated beliefs, that is, impacted such policies, and the true extent to which the Code of Honour caused statesmen to argue for this or that policy line. I hope you'll join me and keep pace with my progress in the PhD then, when the time comes. So, I hope you enjoyed this episode of When Diplomacy Fails Thinks as we sought to peel off some of the wrapping which surrounds the Code of Honour in international relations. In time, I hope to be able to unwrap the concept completely, but until that time comes, I'll have to say thanks for listening, and I'll see you all very soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.